turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thess 1. We've been there for now two weeks. We'll finish up this little mini-series this morning. Father, as the psalmist prayed, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from thy law. Lord, as we turn our attention to the scriptures, might you open our eyes to see the great truths that are here. And might they warm our hearts to love you, to love others, and as you'll see this morning, to be steadfast, persevere, and endure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been focusing our attention on chapter 1, verse 3, as Paul is commending the Thessalonian believers, starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. We've called this little mini-series Eminent Graces, that of all the graces and virtues that we are called to as Christians, maybe these three rise above the others, faith, love, and hope. And of course, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, faith, hope, and love, these three abide. The greatest of these is love. And so we took a look at the work of faith, or the, the good work that is prompted by their faith. And we looked at their labor of love, or the intense labor that was inspired by their love for others. And this morning we will look at their steadfastness of hope, the steadfastness, the perseverance, the endurance that was inspired by their hope in the Lord Jesus. We reminded ourselves that these are outward, that our faith is in God, our love is towards one another, and our hope is in the coming of the Lord Jesus. We said that the Christian life, coming to know Jesus as Savior and being made new, reorients our lives outward. That faith in Christ and the new life that we have turns us up towards God and out towards others and, as you'll see today, on towards faithfulness to Jesus until the very end. And not only that they are outward, but they are also productive. That our faith in God shows itself in good works, work of faith. Our love towards others shows itself in laboring for their good, the labor of love. And that our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming shows itself in steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. And so Paul was grateful for their faith, their love, and now their hope. Their hope was set on the coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. 
this theme of the coming of Jesus shows up in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. You see it there, as we've already seen, their hope in verse 3. But in verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. In chapter 2, verse 19, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? At the end of chapter 3, in verse 12, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In chapter 4, we get the fullest look at this coming in verse 13 and following. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And in chapter 5, there is discussion of his coming in the early verses, but we see it as well in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass the hope that we have is the second coming of Jesus and it's not merely the picture of a preferred future it's the picture of a promised future hope in the new testament is not well i wonder if it's going to rain this afternoon i hope not or i hope it does something that we're not really sure in but it's our preference in the new testament biblical hope is the assured expectation of what god has promised to do our hope is in the assured, promised, second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Peter would say it like this, that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. It is something that is promised and will most assuredly come to pass. And in the New Testament, it is this promised future that sustains our energy now, that fuels our faith, and that keeps us going. That's why Paul uses a word like hupomone, steadfastness perseverance you are staying 
addict as a result of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. The implication is that being faithful in Jesus Christ is not always easy, that the Christian life entails hardship. And if we had a hopeless future, that would be a real bummer. And it would probably mean a whole lot of falling away. If the Christian life was hard and there was no hope, hope that things were ever going to change, hope that present faithfulness was going to be rewarded, I think many would say, then why am I following Christ? There's nothing to look forward to when Christ will come and make all things new then why continue in faithfulness to him? But of course, we don't live with that kind of hopelessness. We live with the promise that the one who came and lived and died and rose and ascended is the same one who is going to come again in great power and glory. As the angels said when he ascended into heaven to those disciples who were looking, just as you have seen him go, so he will come again. One said it like this, Michael Lawrence, in his book, Biblical Theology and the Life of the Church. God has kept his promises in Jesus Christ, but there is one promise we are still waiting for him to keep. It is the day we still look forward to, the day when Christ returns and we enter into the full redemption, not just of our souls, but of our bodies too. Though God is using the delay for our good, we still long for its end. For God means to fully and finally deliver his people, not just from the guilt and condemnation of their sins, but from this very body of death. Christ is coming back, and on that day the trumpet of God will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The dross will be gone. The sin will be gone. Sanctification and suffering will give way to glorification and joy. On that day, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. As Paul declares with a shout of joy, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians, stand firm. Persevere. Your faith in labor is not in vain. Christ has kept his promise. He has delivered you from sin and Satan's power. And he has promised never to leave you, not even to the end of the age. It's a promise he will certainly keep. For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? There is no better promise maker. There is no other promise keeper. So we have a hope. It is in the coming of Jesus Christ again. And as we'll see and as you've heard me say, to make all things new. To judge his enemies and the enemies of his people and to vindicate his people. To establish a kingdom to reign forevermore.
Again, the word steadfastness. He's so proud of them for their steadfastness, their endurance, their perseverance. Again, it implies that the Christian life is not always easy. We have to persevere through challenges to our faith or persecution, right? Maligned for our faith, mocked for our faith, censored for our faith, threatened for our faith, jailed for our faith, even killed for our faith. Certainly so much of what these believers were experiencing when Paul came through and preached the gospel to them He describes it in chapter 2, verse 1. You know, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. When Paul came to Thessalonica, there was much opposition to his preaching, and there was much opposition to their receiving it. You see that in chapter 1. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So, as Jesus was maligned and mocked and threatened and rejected and even killed, so too it may be for God's people. Persecution that you might endure from family and friends demands perseverance. And we have to persevere through our sins, right? Oh, praise God that we are forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future, and praise God that we've been united to Jesus and the power of sin is broken and the Holy Spirit resides within us and we have the instruction of the word and the fellowship of the saints all to encourage us to obey Jesus, but the flesh remains. And it is intense, and the world allures us, and the devil prowls to tempt and to destroy. So while our sins are forgiven, they are not yet no more. When we sin, the temptation from the devil is to give up. No way God can love you, use you, you might as well quit. So we persevere through our persecutions, we persevere through our sins, we persevere through trials. Persecution, we might describe as hardship that comes our way because of our faithfulness to Jesus. We hold fast to him and to his word that runs at odds with the surrounding world and we may suffer for it. And our sins bring hardships into our lives of our own making. Whether that's our anger or our pride or our lusts or our greed. Whatever it might be, we sometimes bring unnecessary trouble into our life because of our own foolishness. But then trials are those things that God in his mysterious providence brings our way not so much as a result of persecution and our faithfulness to Jesus, not as a result of our own foolishness and sin, but of his fatherly hand. Of course, those things look like a million different things, but trials 
redeem us from who we are. John MacArthur says, we tend to forget even the most basic fact that all people live in a fallen world. We are sinful creatures living in a corrupt, sin-cursed society. Believers should not be surprised, perplexed, or resentful when they encounter difficulties throughout this life. Hardships. And I think the word and what Paul is so proud of them for is that in the midst of all of these sorts of hardships, they hadn't quit. They've remained steadfast. They haven't retreated. They haven't thrown in the towel. They have continued to trust and to obey. So let's maybe take a little bit closer look at this. We are those who believe that Jesus is coming again. In chapter 5, Paul talks about the fact that we are children of the light, not of the darkness. And if I understand him right, those who are in darkness in chapter 5 are those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is going to come again. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came from heaven, became one of us, lived a holy life, died upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, and will one day return again. They don't believe it. And so they live in the dark. But he says of us that we are not in the darkness, but rather we are sons of light and sons of the day. We are those who do believe that Jesus came and lived and died and rose and ascended and is one day going to come back. You do believe that, don't you? That is our hope. And we've said that it's at least twofold in its intention. intention. It is judgment on the enemies of God. Paul talks about in Romans 2, a day of wrath that is coming. It's alluded to there in chapter 1, verse 10, that we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In chapter 5, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So a day of wrath is coming, and he seems to get quite specific about it. If you want to look at 2 Thessalonians 1, this is a powerful passage referring to the second coming of Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, let's start in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So that, you will not, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his coming 
when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you is believed. What a powerful handful of words. And Christ is going to come again and bring relief to his people by repaying with affliction those who afflict you. Christ is going to come and judge the enemies of the gospel and of his people, but he's going to vindicate the people of God. As we've seen, we will be delivered from the wrath to come. We will be saved, not because of our goodness, but because of Christ in being united So we are those who believe. We're not in the dark as it relates to the coming of Christ. We're in the light. We know he's coming. And so maybe here's a few things that it might lead to. Number one is that that leads to service. I see that from chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is, again, Paul commending these believers. And one of the things he says about them in verse 8 is that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Apparently, as Paul left Thessalonica, went down to Berea, then on to Athens, down on to Corinth, the word had gotten ahead of Paul about what God had done in the Thessalonians' lives. He says in verse 9, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Here's a group of Christians who had turned from their idols to serve the living God and wait for his son from heaven. Their hope in the coming of Christ had led to steadfastness, and in the meantime, waiting on Christ to come, they served God. We realize that all, all of our serving won't bring in the kingdom of God. That's why we wait for the second coming of Jesus. But we are also not those who, in our waiting for the coming of Jesus, grow slack in a day of service. While we wait, we serve God. While we wait, we serve his people. While we wait, we live for him who died and rose on our behalf and we wait as we wait we serve some of y'all remember Tim Kazee he's one of my favorite writers he came and did our missions conference a few years ago growing up he in his home he said his mama had a sign up in the kitchen there every day of his life only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done is Christ that lasts. Here's a people waiting on Jesus to come, serving the Lord. So it leads to service. And we've already mentioned this one, but it also leads to a knowledge of, but not fear of, the wrath to come. It is a day of wrath. But we don't fear it. Because we're in Christ Jesus, those of us who believe. We believe that Jesus came into the world to what? Go to the cross and do what? Drink the cup. Remember? Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Well, what was the cup we looked at in Mark chapter 14, 15? It was the cup of the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus drunk it for us to the dregs as he died upon the cross. He became a propitiation in his blood. Fancy word, satisfaction for the wrath of God. Praise God. And so Paul can say that Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come, he can say, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can remain steadfast and persevere and endure, knowing that we shall be saved to the uttermost. Maybe it also leads to holiness, a pursuit of holiness. This is teased out maybe just a little bit there in chapter 3. Verse 11 and following. Now may our Lord, and may, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord, Direct our way to you. So Paul still wants to come up and see them. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So Paul's praying that he might be able to go and see them. But in the meantime, he wants their love to increase and abound. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Maybe the idea is this, that as we increase and abound in love, it's that kind of selflessness that is the baseline, if you will, the foundation for a holy but this is establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the coming of Jesus is the goal and it's also that which inspires us in the meantime to pursue holiness. You've heard me make this point before and you don't have to turn there but in Titus chapter 2. Paul instructs 
all the men and women, young and old, to live godly lives. Why? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So Paul puts these together, that our looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of Christ leads to a present denial of ungodliness and worldly desire and a passion to live sensibly, righteously, and godly to be a people who are zealous for good deeds. It leads also to the anticipation of the resurrection from the dead. And thus no fear of death. And that one certainly comes in chapter 4 as we look forward to the second coming of Christ. They were concerned about their brothers and sisters in the Lord, family and friends who had recently died. They wondered about them. Would they miss out on anything related to the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom? In verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And Paul uses that to reference Christians who have died. He, he just calls it they're asleep. Why? Because they're going to come back. They're going to wake up. The resurrection is coming. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul's assumption is that Christians have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we do, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We won't be in any better position than our brothers and sisters who are in the dead. We're not going to precede them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. If anybody's going to be preeminent in this, it's those who are already dead. They will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul doesn't share everything about this, these things in this passage. But here's a couple things he does have in mind. When we die, our spirit will go to be with the Lord, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, and our body will go into the grave. But at the coming of Jesus, our body will be raised from the dead. He has come not just to save our souls, but to save our whole being. And just as his body went into the grave and came out, so too will your body and mine go into the grave and one day be raised new. Death is not the final word for the Christian. We are buried in the hope of the resurrection. It is coming. 
Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. The mortal will put on immortality. And a body of weakness will become a body of power. And as he says in Philippians, the body of our humble estate will be conformed to the body of his glory. And those of us who may be alive at his coming, he doesn't spell it out here, but we will be changed, 1 Corinthians 15. We will be glorified. The body of our humble estate will be transformed. And that resurrection leads to reunion. Verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. So there will be a reunion of the saints and communion with the Lord. thought about this this week probably more vividness than I ever have. My daddy died in 2014, my mom in 2019. Both of them believers. They were buried at Plano Cemetery up in Plano, Texas. Can you all imagine? Let's just take my daddy for instance. If, if all of a sudden that back door opened and my daddy walked in, he died at 73 years old. I don't know how old we're going to be in the resurrection. But let's just take him at 73. But the ravages of decades of diabetes and then the last several years of cancer and then the last several years of his, of his fight with alcoholism. All that was gone. And my daddy was 73 years old as he walked through the door, but he was healthy and he was strong. Can you imagine what he and I would, when I saw him, and he saw me, I would, I would think I would leap off. I might slowly walk. But the reunion, and to be able to hug his neck and to see his smile, and to say, oh, Daddy, you're a little early. The girls will be in here in just a few minutes. What's weird, that day's coming. It's not going to happen in here on a Sunday morning, but that day is coming when I will see my daddy raised from the dead and me too. And we'll be united. And we'll be with the Lord forever. So the second coming of Jesus is coming, y'all. Yes, life can be hard and following Jesus can be hard and we have to persevere through persecution maybe and persevere through our sins for sure and persevere through trials, no doubt. But persevere because he's coming and he's going to make all things new. He's going to wipe away every tear, the burdens that you and I carry. Every single day will be gone. We will rest and we will rejoice forever more. I'll close with this. The image of perseverance is not, it seems to me, flat-footed taking a bullet from the world, from Satan 
from our own selves. It's not flat-footed, just it's a continual moving forward as the blows are launched our way. It's one step in front of another. It is plodding in faithfulness to Jesus. It's moving toward the goal of Christ in an offensive posture. Not defensive. Not oblivious to the enemy's tactics. Well aware of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not surprised by the difficulties, the pains, the persecutions, and the trials. But it's a cling to Christ and a steadfastness because of the hope we have in the coming of Jesus. Let's pray and then that song will share. Father, thank you for your word this morning and may it be so true of us that we would be steadfast. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain. And that we might be regarded, as Paul would say, as fools for Christ's sake in this age, but there is an age to come. A vindication not only of Jesus and all that he said about himself the vindication of your people. And, and so much more beyond that, it will be eternal fellowship and communion with you. New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forevermore. May that hope inspire us, encourage us, and help us to stay faithful to the very end. 